Hello, and welcome to the pilot edition of the Green Bird Experiment. Join myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tiltaraisa. And if you've never heard ourselves before, we are the presenters on Jaffa Geeks for Proust and also the Sitcom Club, both on Podnose. Now, we are basically looking after the seats in the Green Bird studio here. This is a brand new podcast which is going to run on the Podnose network in 2017. And the basic premise is that for each edition, different hosts, so it won't always be ourselves, we might turn up occasionally, different hosts will talk about a particular day's television viewing. They'll get hold of the listings for that particular day and then they'll just discuss what it means to themselves personally, any particular bits and pieces which become talking points, people might go off on tangents and all that kind of stuff. And the name, of course, is referring to two former DGs of the BBC, Hugh Cotton Green, who was Director General from 1960 to 69, and John Bart, 92 to 2000. Although I'm sure if anybody comes along and suggests that they want to talk about the opening of Scottish television in 1957, they've got some sort of first-hand knowledge of that, I'm sure that they won't be sent to Coventry. So, we ran a little Twitter poll in which we managed to break the first and second rules of the Green Bart experiment. The first rule being that it's supposed to be roughly speaking between 1960 and 2000 and also it's supposed to be dates that mean something to ourselves. And there we were suggesting that people might want to hear us talk about Christmas Day viewing of 1955, which we don't really have any first-hand knowledge of. But thankfully the listeners of Podnose responded with a clear majority for today's given date the 25th of December 1985. Tilt. Yes. Are you a big fan of the televisual viewing of the 25th of December 1985, a.k.a. Christmas Day? Let me look at the listings. I, I would definitely have watched, but you know what? Looking at this was not a massive Jaffa Cakes or Proustian rush. So, actually, you know what the first big thing that really hit me was looking at the Radio Times and the illustration that goes with the BBC Two showing of Citizen Kane that stuck in my memory. <laughs> oh, that horrified me. For those who don't have the Christmas Radio Times 1985 in front of them, would you care to give a description of... I'll read out the caption, and then you can describe what's in front of you. So the caption simply is, Orson Welles' depiction of the enigmatic Charles Foster Kane has been recognised as probably the most exciting movie to come out of Hollywood for 25 years. So, what have we got to illustrate that? It's an illustration that, I don't know, I'm beginning to wonder if it's an engraving, because it has that sort of lined quality of an engraving. It is Orson Welles as Charles Foster Kane looking up, looking sorrowful, and he has a rose with its stem, or a rose bud, with its stem sort of pushed through his jacket, and there is blood on it. So it's a very arresting image. I tell you what. When you look back through old Radio Times, isn't it wonderful when they had actual artwork by artists? That to me seems a symbol of the loss of culture in the world. Especially when they're weirdly abstract or unnatural. And somebody's like, you know, our audience will get this. Our audience is fine with this. You've got people with colossal heads and tiny bodies, but it's not caricaturish. It's rather austere. It reminds me of that Royal Bank of Scotland advert where it's some sort of bronze man made of bits flinging pound coins at a dinosaur. It's like, yes, it's abstract, but we're all grown-ups here and this is all about financial services, so obviously it will look like parody of Eastern European stop-motion animation because that's what it's like to be a grown-up in the 80s. And even the, I suppose you would say, more populist TV times of the era and before. Yeah, they can have some quite interesting illustrations from time to time. I think both magazines they do well having the elbow room that comes with having the monopoly on the TV listings. So uh, for anybody unaware, before 1991 the Radio Times was the only publication that carried full BBC TV listings for the week and likewise the TV Times carried ITV and Channel 4 and it wasn't until deregulation of the listings that they carried each other's, and of course all our magazines like What's on TV and etc etc all then sprouted up. But at this time, 
I mean, a cartoon that's on for 15 minutes in the afternoon gets a billing. It actually gets description of the plot. It might have like names attached to it and things like that. It's quite something in comparison to... I mean, nowadays at Christmas, you'll be appalled by this, Tilk. I'm not really sure if you've actually been made aware of this. But the Radio Times nowadays, the daytime listings every day, not just at Christmas, are truncated into a sidebar progress. But we're not just going to be a couple of old farts, but we're going to approach the situation with determination. However, I've done barely any research for this because, as I understand it, the whole idea is the schedule is the starting point and the conversation will just spin off in many different ways. Yeah, we've approached this a little bit differently to, say, Jaffa Cakes podcast, where we've, we've got the listings in front of us, of course, and we've both browsed the listings and we've done some viewing ahead of time. But it's not like we've got sort of copious notes. We haven't sort of gone into trying to browse internal BBC memos or anything like that. It's much more sort of free and easy. I am going to put forward an argument during this edition. And this is not a prerequisite for anybody who wants to host this show in the future, by the way. It's just the way that I'm going to approach it myself. I'm going to put forward the argument that Christmas Day 1985 was the last great Christmas on British TV. And I do have some, not necessarily evidence, but I've got arguments to that effect. And it's up to yourself, Tilt, if you want to agree with them, disagree with them. You know, let's get the debate going. Let's have, let's have conflict, because that's what's going on in 2016, you know? Jeremy Kyle and all that kind of thing. That's not particularly 2016 reference, but you know what I mean? Let's start, as we mean to go on. Christmas Day 1985. Why did we pick years ending in five for our poll? Why didn't we pick years ending with six? <laughs> because it's 2016. Are you suggesting that Christmas 1986 basically spoiled everything for everybody forevermore? I think you hold it up as the grimmest... Schedule. Not the grimmest item. Christmas Day 1993 takes some beating, but... <laughs> can, can you give a quick explanation for that, for anybody who hasn't heard that? Jeff it was the year... What, well, Christmas Day 1986 was the year of Royal Flush, the only Fools and Horses special with no audience. John Sullivan not being able to oversee it because he was busy with the Just Good Friends Christmas special. And as a result... Derek Trotter comes out incredibly harsh and unpleasant and unlikable and there's a chilly atmosphere because of the lack of audience. And wasn't there an EastEnders that day and a Miss Marple? There's no bank crash. Way! Sure busy glittery Christmas moment in that schedule. When I said could you give an explanation, I was actually referring only to 1993. Well, 1993, uh, ITV... Middle of the day, movies, games, and videos, Christmas special, which is going to be. Uh, we haven't seen it. Maybe there's a massive break from its normal format, but it's going to be somebody reading out press releases over electronic press kits. I still maintain that a clip show, an actual clip show of basically home video footage of famous sports stars hosted by Chris Tarrant in peak time. At least is Chris worse. Tarrant is there. Present, there's an audience, it gives you a greater sense of human contact than movies, games, and videos. Also, movies, games, and videos is purely promotion, and the shops didn't open, I think, until the 27th that year. My complaint about 1986 is not primarily with Only Fools and Horses, but I'm going to space these out. I'm not going to go in straight away with a complaint. We're going to keep this a nice balance. We're going to have a nice balance over the course of this edition. So, first of all, what does Christmas Day 1985 specifically mean to yourself? Do you have any specific memories of Christmas 85 at all? Watching any of these shows, not watching them, whatever. It's interesting looking at this thinking, well, I'm pretty sure I watched these, but there's nothing in here that says, oh, oh, fantastic. I mean, I have a memory of watching the two Ronnie's Christmas special, but actually I have a memory of watching that at lunchtime sometime in the early 90s. But no, this is a weirdly unmemorable schedule. Let me just look at ITV, because I was looking at the Radio Times then. There, there are certain points of ITV where it feels even less like a special day. Oh, no, I cannot have this. I cannot Name have that tune, Coronation Street. Yes, it's Fresh Fields is a quarter of an hour longer, but even then. Minder, special. I mean, look at the length of that yes, minder. that's look right at the smack at prime time. That, but there just seems to be one little stretch in, in ITV schedule where it doesn't seem to be doing all that much. Okay, well, let's start breaking this down. So where do we want to start? Do you want to start BBC One, the nation's favourite? Quite a late start, isn't it, for Christmas Day? 8am, and that's only pages from CFAX. 
Yes, they're letting us down. We did a whole show about seasonal oddities, about how one of the great joys of Christmas television is first thing in the morning, nobody's wasting their really good material. So they're just chucking out something from a studio you've never heard of with an animation style that's not quite what you're used to. Or it might be a live-action film, but either way, it's a little unlike the regular schedules today. Play School, then Muppet Babies. I think I've seen the continuity announcement for this one as well. And here's a cartoon about what the Muppets were like when they were babies. Don't try and pitch it like it's something special. (laughs) What's Knock Knock? I don't know. I don't know what Knock Knock is. This is bizarre. It simply says Knock Knock celebrates Christmas around the Christmas tree with Brian Murray and Shireen Shah. And Brian Murray, I'm wondering if that's the same Brian Murray who was in Bread. He was one of the characters that came in sort of later on in the series. BBC Manchester production just seems like a sort of wrong place, school, doesn't it? But no, Muppet Babies caused a little bit of consternation when I saw that, but I'm going to give it a free pass because I, mean, I don't expect it nowadays, of course. But one thing that I really was really sort of insistent about with Christmas listings, and, and to be honest, I'm not really sure that I was actually insistent about them at the time, but I think this is more sort of rose tinted glasses thing looking back and what have you. I expect Christmas Day listings to all be. Christmas programming. If it's a film, it doesn't have to be Christmassy, but it has to be at least a premiere. But Muppet Babies, it's not a Christmas one. It's a Raiders of the Lost Ark pastiche. So because it's basically tapping into the big film of Christmas previously, 1984, I'm going to let it go. But I would have preferred if it had been a Christmas Muppet Babies. Who wouldn't? There's a very Sunday-ish feel about this schedule. I think there's a reason for that. What is the reason? It's a Sunday, isn't it? Let me double check that. I'm just assuming, but I'm thinking by the the later start time and the just general shape of the early morning schedule, it does feel like a Sunday, doesn't it? The the thing is, is that Christmas Day 1985 was a Wednesday. (laughs) And so it's like, this is the day. So, I mean, I understand there being a church service, but this is the day. That's the BBC's early morning religious strand. It's not like carols from a particular church in a particular place in the understandable fashion. There's like, oh, you know, morning service for Christmas. It's like, This is the day. So there you go. It's a bog standard strand. Later on, we got all creatures grunt and smell. I had misgivings about this as a day because surely Christmas Day you'd have a proper service. I know this business about we're going to have a service, but it's going to be introduced by... Someone from a viewer's home in Birmingham. This feels... Over on ITV, you've got Christmas morning service from Kenton Methodist Church. Exactly, yeah, you've got proper morning service. Wait a minute. You're complaining about what time the Christmas Day schedule starts. I was only talking about BBC One. But it starts differently for you. You're in Scotland. And doesn't your Christmas Day start with a message from the moderator of the Mausoleum Club Forum? This is a bit of a sore spot, actually. I jest. This is not like Easter Monday 1985, which I'm still actually quite upset about. And if I've never mentioned that before, it's basically STV not showing the Revenge of the Pink Panther and sticking to a regular schedule, including the evening news. But still showing the subtitles. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that was brilliant. And looking back at it now, I think I would have preferred to see it as I did that way, uh, because it's much more memorable that way. But no, I mean, I'm largely over that now. I am still a bit annoyed about it. I mean, I really was making an absolute utter pain in the arse of myself at the age of, what I've been then, seven. I mean, I was talking about nothing else that day but the fact that we weren't getting this Pink Panther film. I must have been absolutely insufferable. Anyway, your moderator's Christmas message. This is an ITV thing, mainly. Now, in Scotland, of course, you have like the watch night service the night before instead of midnight mass on BBC and ITV. But ITV usually start a little bit early, and they have 10 minutes of the Reverend I Am Jolly, and they come on and tell you all about the true meaning of Christmas, and then you can get on with all the good stuff, and what have you. However, we've got this big old roadblock that's arrived now in the shape of TV AM. So, we can't do that anymore. We can't start at 10 to 9 in the morning because that airtime's taken. So, get ready for some quite upsetting news, Till. Viewers in Scotland, and I have checked and that includes Grampian and Border, did not see the repeat edition of Christmas Fraggle Rock. Because we had the moderator's Christmas message instead. (laughs) 
Now, I liked Fraggle Rock. I wasn't obsessed with it or anything like that, but if Fraggle Rock had been my favourite programme ever made at that point, I would have wrecked Christmas for everybody as a result of that information. I would have been furious. I don't even know necessarily how I would have found out. That's the thing, because getting the STV TV times, it would have had variations for Grampian and Border, and they were both the same. So, I don't know where I would have found it. I might have found it on Oracle, or perhaps like the newspaper listings or something like that, but I would have found out. I would have known. And, oh my god. I wonder if the moderator mentioned Fraggle Rock, just to rub it in. <laughs> okay, so the TVM larking about, is that the kind of thing you think you would have put on in the morning? I mean, you haven't got much choice, because it's the only thing that is on, but would you have had that on, do you reckon? Because they used to make a big deal about the Christmas Day dues. There's one TVAM Christmas that sticks in my mind, because they kept going on about how they were going to be showing this thing, Herself the Elf. They really pushed that thing. Like, that was that was a special occasion. I guess it was just some American cartoon. I think it qualified as a seasonal oddity. I'll have to dig around. I just remember getting some particularly good toys that year. Some sort of moon lander vehicle that had a little buggy behind it that you could keep an orange monster in. But no, they're having a good old Christmas knees up. I think the last few minutes of this are on YouTube, actually, where you get to see everybody doing all the carol singing and what have you. And it's quite a lineup that's on there. I mean, who have we got there? We've got Cliff himself. He's on there. We've got Adam Ant, we've got Paul McCartney, and we've got Russ Conway. So that's all right, isn't it? That's a nice way to start the day. No, I have no criticism of TVAM's handling of Christmas. You have, I think, what might be called strong, perhaps even hmm, militant views on the subject of films on Christmas Day television. Yes, they should be frothy and colourful and bitty. They shouldn't really have a plot that you have to pay a great deal of attention to. I was thinking more that you didn't like them being on at all. If they can be avoided, avoid them. Absolutely. I'm perfectly fine with what BBC2 had at 12.20pm that day. We should point out by the way that BBC2 started at, what was it, 11.25? Was it? 11.30, yes. Supercharge. Restored Grand Prix. It's got here Grand Prix. Cars from <laughs> 1924 and 1939. Test driven by John Watson. Repeat. Followed by The Men in the Santa Claus Suit, a TV movie with Fred Astaire, and three men hire Santa Claus suits, and they get their wishes, effectively. But it's a TV movie, it's Christmassy, it's... I think... I think it's shot on 16mm film. You do have these little bits where it's just like it's an ordinary sentimental film, and then for some reason they cut to a handheld steady cam of not particularly well-lit 16mm, and it just goes a little bit chilly for a moment but that's the kind of movie you want uh, you like i mean i've got no complaints about whatever year it was that yorkshire showed the christmas martian that's a christmas film though that's a load yes where do you stand on the gnome mobile i have never seen it but yeah it's a children's film it's disney i still think i'd rather have an actual special made by a british television company right there instead and of course we have a repeat on ITV of the big Christmas 82 premiere, the one that everyone was watching, The Black Hole, and Norded viewers in the Southwest. But on this occasion they are actually... they got Adventures it. of a Taxi Driver? Oh, I wish. No, I started a rumour on Twitter that, that <laughs> TSW had opted out of the Pink Panther on Christmas 1983 for Adventures of a Taxi Driver. But uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't gain traction. I was really hoping that that was going to become viral. Let's not go through this bit by bit. Let's actually make sure that we just pick out the plums. No, no, no. There's, there's no question of any bit by bit going on. But right, let's we, jump we... straight to 1pm on ITV. Oh, hey! Yes, good choice. So you're saying that you preferred this to Top of the Pops, did you? Well, it doesn't clash with Top of the Pops. Was it that they were trying to appeal to the youth element, realised they couldn't take on Top of the Pops directly and put it before Top of the Pops, thinking those kids out there who want two hours of pop music can watch us first and then watch Top of the Pops, or were they thinking we will wear them out after our hour of hot pop they will have no taste left for Top of the Pops. It will be like eating an entire turkey and then being faced with another entire turkey. So let's stick it to Top of the Pops. Funnily enough, you say there that they couldn't go head-to-head -head with Pops, but that is what they tried to do exactly 10 years later. ITV scheduled a Take That concert for the 2 o'clock slot. 
to go bang opposite Top of the Pops on BBC. And they forced the BBC's hand and Top of the Pops moved to 12.55. The fact that the BBC blinked first, I think that that meant they didn't have confidence in Pops by 95. So So I can tell you that at least one video that was shown on ITV that afternoon was Kate Bush and running up that hill. How do you know these things? Because in the TV Times there's a big picture of Kate Bush. And it says, among the hits on Jim Davidson's top pop videos of 1985... (laughs) is Running Up That Hill, the single that marked the return of Kate Bush to the British music scene after an absence of three years. I'm curious as to how they, they chose Jim Davidson to be effectively their equivalent of a Radio 1 DJ to present their show. I mean, a couple I of years think, later... Hang on a minute, I'm thinking this page is telling you everything that's on the show. Chrissy Hind with UB40, Go West, Band-Aid, Elton John, Nick Kershaw singing Wide Boy. Well, he's personally selected by Jim Davidson. In the same way that Daley Thompson, for example, wrote the decathlon game for the Commodore 64. I don't know a great deal about Jim Davidson's musical taste, but I know he's heavily into prog. But I'm not sure what Magma were doing in 1985. It's all very well you engaging in this attack by ITV on the good name of Top of the Pops. But I'm going to save myself. I'm going to wait for the proper Top of the Pops Christmas party, partly because I'm very much tuned to BBC One on this festive Christmas morning because not only have we got the BBC debut in his own show of former TVM superstar Roland Ratt where hey and look at the cast list he's got here Russell Grant Frankie Howard Jan Leeming Ian McCaskill Beryl Reed and Valerie Singleton and that is a cast list is it not I plus, don't like Roland Ratt so plus Her Majesty the Queen herself Jeanette Charles so well I don't see how you can't like Roland Rat because everybody likes Roland Rat. But nevertheless, that was quite a rapid turnover because I think he only actually defected to the BBC in the autumn of that year, so that was quite rapid, this show. And it's quite a nice slot in the middle of the morning. And then we've got the second of I think there was five of these altogether, the Noel Edmonds Live Live Christmas Breakfast Show. So in various guises this went on until nineteen eighty eight. And it's two hours of Noel at the top of the telecom tower. And even though this only went on for five years, I just sort of associated this with Christmas morning. 80s Christmas mornings is Noel and he's at the top of the telecom tower and he's live. That's what it's all about. It is one of those things about looking back at one's own childhood. And I'm sure now five years would be a blip. I don't think you'd really register, but yes, it does feel like Noel Edmonds was at the top of the telecom tower every single Christmas since Christmas began. It's a bit like my memory as well of the two Ronnies always being on at lunchtime. And it turned out to be, I think, three Christmases in the early 90s. Yes, the, the comedy selection box. Yeah. And uh, once again, at least one year we didn't get that in Scotland. We had the Beach Grove Garden. Yeah, that's, that's true, that is. But Michael Hurl, executive producer of Roland Rats, Yuletide Binge, and producer of Noel Evans' Christmas Show, He was interviewed about that latter show in 2003 and he mentioned that one of their big set piece bits of business that year was that they convinced Richard Branson to lend them a jumbo jet and then they could fly it in the air and have the crankies on it and have Fergal Sharky perform (laughs) live. And how can you put this politely? Not only did Fergal Sharky not perform live, he's very clearly miming, but as Hull himself put Couldn't it... Couldn't he not hear it at first as well? So he didn't know when the playback had started. As Hull put it, the only person in Britain who couldn't hear Fergal Sharkey was Fergal Sharkey. And there he is. And the, the band are... They're into it. They can hear the track. So they're all mime and they're fine. But it's just himself. So Shergal, he's just sort of stood there and saying, what am I doing? He's doing a gin pitney. There's no like sudden recovery. There's not like after a few seconds he suddenly starts singing. So they just have to hand back to Noel and Noel's just... Not himself laughing, <laughs> saying, well, there you are. So, yeah, you don't get that kind of thing these days when you don't have live television. There's always something nice about a live show in the morning where it sort of has that air of, not necessarily suspense, but there's, there's a possibility that there's going to be something of that ilk happening. Really, though, this show is not meant to be watched. It's clearly Christmas lunch is obviously going to be sometime between 11.55 and 2pm, depending on the household. So, don't worry. In five minutes' time, another item will come up and you can ignore that one. Lot of Mike Smith on this day as well, because he is co-hosting the Christmas breakfast show. 
And also, he is in charge of the children's Royal Variety performance. We'll just mention that briefly because th- this seems to be a sort of standard thing is that you don't want what comes immediately after the Queen at 3 o'clock, you don't want that to be too heavy. You don't want it to be something that really requires your attention too much because you're sleeping off the turkey. So, like, for example, the Royal Family, the Christmas edition of that from 99, they're watching the ballet on BBC Two. Not particularly interested in the ballet, but it's just there. It's just got some silly nonsense just going on, and you can just vegetate in front of it. You can just look at it. You don't have to take it in. You don't have to follow the plot. So something like this, where you've got just act after act after act, that's perfect, isn't it? I mean, that's that's exactly the kind of thing that you want in that particular slot. You don't want anything which is really demanding that you've got to pay close attention. So Smiley's People, that would never have done well in this slot, would it? Whereas I'm not entirely sure, but ITV going with Moonraker. Yeah, I mean, is that not a bit sort of plot heavy? I can't believe I'm actually saying that. But you know It's a I mean. Roger Moore Bond film, so really it's <laughs> it's capering about. Isn't Moonraker the one with the pigeon that does a double take? Meanwhile, Channel 4 got a bit larking about going on. The Marx Brothers at the circus. You ever seen At the Circus? I haven't seen At the Circus. No, I can tell because you went, oh, Marx Brothers, a bit of larking about. Trust me. If you'd seen At the Circus, you'd go, oh, hmm. Here's, here's disappointment on Channel 4. So are you saying, oh, fantastic, there's a Laurel Hardy film on and then discovering it's a 20th Century Fox? Yeah, I mean, At the Circus does contain Lydia the Tattooed Lady. That's a real high point. Beyond that, it's really very weak stuff. And I mean, after that is a Buster Keaton talkie. Buster Keaton film from 1939. God, is that when he's in, like, educational pictures? Oh, boy. <laughs> I thought it was in later years that Channel 4 used to have the themed Christmases. Did they actually start that earlier? And it's like, in this year, Channel 4, it's Comedy Disappointments of 1939. Channel 4 sleight-of-hand Christmas, where every show looks good at first glance and then you drill down to the detail. <laughs> and oh, oh, God. So, all in all, and by the way, I did go looking for Sky Channel listings. For the, like, the, the dozen people who had Sky Channel on cable in 1985. And there were some. I know a guy who sort of grew up with Sky Channel and what have you, long before the dishes were around. I couldn't find any Sky Channel listings. I didn't have access to the Sun TV listings. So, alas. We're just limited to the four channels. That's all we've got. But we, we may have a VCR on the go. Who knows? But these four channels here, so far, we're now around about sort of three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Is, are, you, are you feeling that? Are you sort of in the Christmas sort of mood? What do you reckon? Is it all together? You happy with the lineup? It's good enough. It's an adequate Christmas this year on BBC One. <laughs> Let me ask you a pertinent question. Now, it's 2016, so nobody gives a damn about anything anymore, and everybody just does their own thing, and there's no standards, and there's no tradition or anything. So, this doesn't really apply nowadays, but put yourself in this period of time here, where there's still the expectation that you're going to enjoy Christmas Day, right? At what point does Christmas Day sort of run out? Because you don't have the same feeling at, say, 11 o'clock at night as you do at, say, 7 o'clock in the morning. But let's narrow it down. At what point? Is it after the presents have been opened? Is it after the turkey? Is it after you've seen the only frozen horses? When is it? When do you actually sort of begin to sort of get a bit fed up at Christmas Day? January 6th. You like Christmas, don't you? I like Christmas, yes. But, no, I'm more thinking of... As the evening goes on, more often than not, you tend to sort of see non-Christmassy elements starting to creep into the schedule because by the evening, people have stopped saying Merry Christmas to each other. You see? This is my point about movies in the evening. I still don't like them. I understand that you're not going to have a full turkey and tinsel and lights thing in the evening, but there does seem to be this point when certainly BBC One every year goes Christmas is over! What year was it? True Grit 2, A Further Adventure. Oh! Fantastic news! Fantastic news! I'm so glad you said that. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't spotted it in the TV listings and I can't see how you would have failed to have, but just in case it passed you by CBS Drama Channel, which I think is available on Freeview as well as Satellite and Cable 4.45pm Christmas Eve True Grit, A Furler Adventure. 
And yes, I will be watching it. Fantastic. And now, let's be serious. The reason that that was on was because Mark and Wise had defected to ITV and BBC was waving the white flag. So we, we can't really use that as an example of the BBC saying, right, Christmas is done. Come on, it's time for something a bit more serious. It seems to be a little bit beyond just waving a white flag. <laughs> In fact, I'm saying that they're saying Christmas is over forever. There will never be another Christmas again on this earth. That's the feeling I get from True Grit of Further Adventure. That's why my belief is is that the best showing a Christmas movie in the middle of Christmas night is 1971 ITV Around the World in 80 Days. Colour and cameos and froth. That's a Christmas Day movie. What about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 70s? Oh, please. But that's just sort of larking about Do you know how that movie ends? Well, no, don't tell me. I've never seen it. But, okay, I presume a downer, you're going to tell me. It's not exactly... The Godfather or anything like that. I mean, that's your BBC Two fair, isn't it? Just so something nonsensical and light. Well, let's jump around then, rather than going too linear, because if we're going to pursue no, this point, well, the Christmas, what do you hope to gain by going linear? Making it more boring that way? If we start going off-road, then we'll never find a way back. I mean, this is exactly the no, it's problem. Okay. I've You're... got it all written down here in front of me on the tablet. I've got the Times listings. You're going 2016. 2016, anything goes at any because time during the day. Because it is 2016, that's why. Not as so far as bring, we're concerned. We're bringing your point further about Christmas Day, by a certain point you don't want too much Christmas. I mean, That Evening's Two Ronnies is a Christmas special just barely. That Evening's Two Ronnies is actually the first show of Series 12. I'm not kidding this at all. I'm not, I've never been a fan of shows beginning a series on Christmas Day. And ITV did it in 94, and, and it's happened in all the years, and I've never been a fan of it, to be honest. You start off with some jokes, with the desk routines. I think they might be Christmassy. Certainly there's a big piece of tinsel behind them. Nice, big, bushy tinsel. Good old-fashioned tinsel, haha. The kind of tinsel that when you take it down, you can hear the reflections off the walls for days afterwards. You never realised how much it was deadening the sound. Tinsel that serves as sound treatment. You can turn an ordinary suburban living room into Abbey Road. Sorry, the two Ronnies. So there are jokes at the end. The big, big musical number is Alice in Wonderland, based. And as part of that, the music has excerpts from Winter Wonderland. And beyond that, every other sketch is a two Ronnie sketch that could go at any time of year. So you think that's actually intelligent use of the time? A little Christmassy, but for the most part, it's just... The two Ronnies. Well, I around. suppose. I mean, nine o'clock at night, fair enough. But I've never been a fan of series beginning on Christmas Day. It works both ways. I'm never a fan of series on Christmas Day. I'm not a fan of shows continuing their run. Because sometimes you've had that where like a series just happens to be in mid-run and an episode of it is on Christmas Day. Also, Countdown. Remember Countdown for years in the 90s? used to have its final, its grand final on Christmas Day. I always thought that was really odd, because if you've been following Countdown every single day, and you got into the routine, you're not in your normal routine on Christmas Day. So how can you guarantee you're going to be able to see it? But so, everybody's wishing we had to do Christmas 1965 instead now, where Doctor Who is in the middle of an exciting adventure with the Daleks, but oh, it's Christmas Day and nobody's going to be watching, so let's just all muck around, and next week we'll resume the exciting adventure. Now, funny you should say that, because I think it's time that we, or I, at least deployed the first of my three-pronged attack on post-1985 Christmas viewing. And it's up to yourself whether you wish to agree or disagree with this statement. But it's a bit predictable, this one. But I'm not blaming everything on EastEnders, although I largely am. But, okay, so you've got soaps such as Crossroads and Coronation Street running over Christmas in the 70s and what have you. And normally they're larking about. So they're not going to have any big storylines over the Christmas period because, exactly as we are just saying, people are not in their normal routine and they can't guarantee they're going to be able to see it. And let's face it, we're talking about Christmas on ITV and nobody's watching anyway. So well, you see, got... you say this, right? But I have the plot description for the Coronation Street that went out on Christmas Day. Sam is miserable about his lost pudding. <laughs> Emily invites him for tea to cheer his Christmas up. Now, come on! Fantastic. Oh, God, I wish that was a plot of 2016. I would tune in for that. I wish that was an all-day thing. I wish I had six episodes on, an hour apiece, and it was actually the hunt for the Christmas pudding, and you could join in. 
they were like leaving little clues and you had to like go on the website and use like sat nav and google maps and everything to try and find out where it was that'd be brilliant there is this i don't know if you're aware of this till this is um it's this tv show in the uk right and uh, it's called east enders and it's set in london i think it is and it's basically a lot of people who were arguing with each other at all times of the day and night now it starts in 85 and we've got a bit of that going on the radio times and what have you but they're not on the day itself christmas 86 Maybe they felt... Is that the divorce paper? That's the one. That's the one that got half the nation watching the damn thing. And as this was then related years later, supposedly Tony Holland, the co-creator of EastEnders, didn't like Christmas. And so he said to his co-writers that he was looking forward to spoiling people's day with that addition. Yeah, it's a massive downer, that episode. And maybe the BBC thought, well, of course, everybody's going to be rolling around in Niles having watched Only Frozen Horses, <laughs> so therefore we can get away with this. <laughs> there you go. You want to spoil Christmas? You don't know how to spoil Christmas, mate. You want to see Christmas spoiled? Watch this! You see that? That's your dramatic end credits drum fill, not do, 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 I didn't want to make a plonker of myself. So I did some research about this because it would be easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, Christmas 86, EastEnders, and ever since then, every Christmas is always EastEnders and so on and so on. Actually, no. There was a Christmas EastEnders in 87, but Christmas Day EastEnders doesn't actually become a fixture on BBC One until 1992. And even then, it's still only half an hour. We don't get our first double edition until 95. Which was the one where they just did the conga for an entire hour? Oh, well, that's the annoying thing because that was actually the trailer for 86. Oh, right, so it was yes. a complete bait and switch. It was promising you it was going to be a good old Chas and Dave Cockney knees up, and it wasn't anything like that. But over the last 10 years or so, we've now got to the point where an hour of EastEnders is guaranteed on BBC One on Christmas night, and ITV, trying to sort of keep up with EastEnders and its popularity, slowly made Emmerdale and Coronation Street a bit more gritty. And they followed suit as well. So now you are absolutely guaranteed, before you even get your Christmas Radio Times, you know that it's going to be three hours of soaps in peak time on the main channels on the night. And I just think that that spoiled things. I really do. Part of the reason why I dislike those shows is because, okay, it's constant aggression and constant fighting. And I don't know that's necessarily... It's not particularly cheering. It's not particularly cheering at any time of the year, but it's certainly not cheering for Christmas night viewing. But also... Those shows are not particularly welcoming. Constant aggression and constant fighting. He doesn't like it. The man who likes WWE. That's different. I wouldn't put WWE slap bang in the middle of the Christmas night schedule. Although Sky 1 has actually done that in the past. But they know again nobody's watching. So, no, the point is that those shows are not particularly inclusive for any passing trade, so to speak. So let's say if I take 2016's listings, for example. May Gray, Rowan Atkinson. Now, I've never seen Meg Ray, don't know any of the characters, but I'm pretty sure that if I start watching that on the night, within the first five minutes, I'll know who's who and what they're doing, and there you are. Same as if I'd ever picked up an episode of Poirot, and never seen any of it before, but just happened to, to watch it, or Midsummer Murders, whatever. Call the Midwife, maybe the sort of relationship between the characters might be a bit lost on me, but again, I presume it's going to be structured in such a way that if I wanted to, I could just pick it up there and then, and if I'd never seen any of the previous editions, then it doesn't matter. EastEnders, on the other hand, and Cory and Emmerdale, and Hollyoaks, for that matter, and any other soap that's on, okay, I could sit there and watch it for an hour, but I don't know who anybody is. I don't know what their issues are with each other. And nowadays, we don't have the nice, friendly continuity announcer coming on with a few rostrum camera slides saying, here's so-and-so, and this is what their problem is, and so-and-so on. As if all of that wasn't even enough. You don't even get any resolution on the night itself, do you? Because, okay, like the odd storyline might be largely tied up on the night, but it's a soap. It's a continuing drama. So it's not as if you get like a nice feeling of having sat through all of Miss Marple and you watch it. It was him! I knew it was him! I knew he looked a bit suspect at the beginning. No, they just want you to carry on watching the next day and the next day and the next day and so on. So if you're into those things, if you're into the soaps, then presumably you're having a whale of a time on Christmas nights in recent years. But if you're not, then I feel personally excluded. And I'm all upset about it. I don't even have any sport to watch, because there's any sport on Christmas Day. That's not the only thing. One of the big losses of British television, though, has been BBC Two. 
having its own identity. I'm always interested in BBC Two schedules for Christmas. They're a little parallel world. I always imagine that they're really for single people or older couples who've... It's just really them. They offer a little bolt hole you can rush off to when all the specials are getting a bit too loud. Or they're throwing bitty stuff at you because they think that you're going to be preparing a massive big turkey dinner. Lots of classical concerts. That kind of thing. I've always liked that. It's the kind of thing that's like, I didn't really watch it at the time. It was nice to know it was there. And actually, no, you would occasionally just depressurize sometimes, flicking over. Okay, the question is this. You know what you've got available to you on the light channels. You've got the children's raw variety performance. You've got all creatures grunt and smell. On ITV, you've got Moonraker, and then you've got Lionel Blair with Name, wait for it, that tune. However, are you going to watch the big film on BBC Two? Are you going to watch the greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane? Is it Christmas viewing, as far as you're concerned? Not really, no. I'm just sort of wondering if it's really the kind of thing that you're sufficiently affluent enough and cultured enough that you have a VCR. Ah, Citizen Kane. It's been a while since I've seen that because it's the 80s and not everything is just there instantly. So I will program the video recorder to video record that while I watch that Buster Keaton short that I've never heard of. <laughs> it's going to be a battle of laughs. But you have seen the program that follows Citizen Kane. Yes, because that turns out to be on YouTube. A price performance, hinge and bracket. I just had a look. I thought, which of these shows on this day are going to be quite easy for me to get hold of? I thought, Pretty sure there's a lot of Hinge and Bracket on YouTube. And that one turned out to be there. And it's interesting because I thought it was just going to be a straightforward Hinge and Bracket concert. But it actually starts out with the sitcom-y elements of Dear Ladies. But with no audience because it's all location. And I guess they're not going to stump up for a laugh track session. So there's this whole thing of uh, Dr. Hinge trying to find out Dame Hilda's time at this school that they're playing at they're meant to be going to her old school she can't find her on any of the pictures and it leads one to believe oh just how old is she and there's even a joke about computers you see that to me is a little jewel of bbc2 christmas scheduling it's a place people can meet because for some of the audience hinge and bracket will be a little bit of culture and when i say for some of the audience i'm talking me and for another part of the audience, they're actually the froth. And we need more of that kind of thing. A bit like Call My Bluff and My Music. Serves two audiences in two different ways. Some it's a step up, some it's a step down. Doesn't really matter which is the right approach. There is no right approach. Everybody's meeting together on BBC Two. I'm saying it's doing more for classic quality than you. <laughs> you suddenly get close to making a frivolous political statement. Somebody's going to take that completely seriously and get on my case about it when in doubt be nasty to gary going to say that this christmas day lineup on bbc one is fabulous absolutely brilliant and i'm even gonna break my rule about not enjoying new series beginning on christmas day because we've got two of them here but what the heck very enjoyable christmas episode of heidi high we're now in the david griffin era post simon cadell Okay, so I've just said about how much I dislike things like EastEnders going out of their way to be doer and what have you. I actually quite like this plot of Heidi High because... Are you familiar with this particular episode? I'm not all that familiar with Heidi High. I like the fact that the plot of this episode, whilst it's all very jolly and funny, and it's not unusual, it's it's not all on film, it's a, your regular VT film mix. It's just an hour-long I like the fact that it's got a slight undercurrent about it, which actually makes the audience slightly uncomfortable. David Griffin, as opposed to Simon Goodell, he is more willing to engage in nefarious activity, if he thinks it's going to be to his benefit. And the plot of this, basically, is that there is an emerald necklace that's been lost on the camp. Ted finds this information now, and he wants to go looking for it. And eventually, they manage to narrow it down to a certain set of chalets. But it's at the height of the season, and they can't just go rummaging in the chalets when the visitors are there. And also, they don't want to tip off the visitors, because, of course, they're going to want their cut. So, what they actually do, strangely enough, with the approval of most of the staff of Maplins, is that they drug the campers. They drug their cocoa at night to make sure that they're all going to be completely out of the game and so that then they can move 
them in their beds out of their chalets and then basically rip up the floorboards and go looking for this necklace. It's quite something, and it never gets to the point where you are actually actively against Ted and the rest of the staff for having done this, but it is slightly uneasy. I think it's all the better for it, because it gives it an added sort of touch of depth. It gives it another touch of sort of amusement and what have you. On the face of it, it looks like cosy, cuddly comedy, but some of the things that Ted gets up to and Squadron Leader Dempstone, what have you, sometimes some of the things that they get up to are a little bit rum, and yet you're still supposed to like them, and you do like them, so that's part of its genius. And then we've got Only Fools and Horses, and I don't think I'm going to be the only one who would argue that possibly this is Only Fools and Horses at its peak. This is absolutely the height of its success and of its quality. And To Holland Back is superb. Now, have you seen To Holland Back? Are you familiar with this? I thought I had, and I don't think I have now. Or I would have probably seen it at the time, maybe seen it in repeat, but it's not the one I thought it was. I thought Cash of Diamonds, is this the one where the guy fakes the heart attack? But it's not that one, is it? No, no, that's uh, a regular episode called Chain Gang. No, this is a nice feature-length edition. It's all on film, and there is no audience for this one. No studio audience. This is something we said on Sitcom Club, that the sitcom movie becomes the sitcom television special. So you can point to Getting Sam Home and whatever the name of the Duty Free Christmas special was. Those are the equivalents of the grand 70s sitcom movies. At the time, I wouldn't really have appreciated this. We've been far too young. I could appreciate regular Only Fools and Horses. If you've never seen this, if you've never seen To Hold Back, it'll be on, guaranteed it'll be on goal over Christmas. So definitely give it a go. You won't be disappointed. However, there is stiff competition from the other side this year. No, no slight on Julian McKenzie or Anton Rogers, but I don't think I would have chosen Freshfields over Heidi High. However... Half past seven, Mind on the Orient Express. Till, give us a flavour of the names that are in this, because it's one hell of a cast list. Well, the interesting thing is, I think they've gone for natural top two billing, and then after that, I think it's possibly in order of appearance. Because, hey, you got Carl Howman, but I mean, Honor Blackman is near the bottom. Ronald Lacey, Debbie Arnold, Morris Denham, oh, Jesse Birdsell, eventually to be in... Uh, El Dorado. Bugs on UK Gold. Oh, there. Sorry, no. Sorry, I was looking at the cast list underneath the plot description. Above the plot description, they've decided who's most important. Dennis Waterman, George Cole, Glenn Edwards, Patrick Malahide, Peter Childs, Honor Blackman, Adam Faith, Ronald Lacey, Amanda Pears, Ralph Bates, Robert Beatty, Morris Denham, James Faulkner, and Manning Redwood. That's how the cast list goes above the description. It's not a bad lineup, is it? I mean, it's absolutely packed. Episode, as you'd expect, because it's actually on the Orient Express itself. And this was trailed at the time in the newspapers as the big fight, effectively. And Only Fools and Horses came out as the victor. But it's pretty good, isn't it? I mean. Where's ITV at? Because it looks to me, they have that thing, and we mentioned it when we did All Star Christmas Comedy Carnival over on Jeffa Cakes of Proust, that ITV goes through different cycles of not trying and then trying. Not trying, appearing to try, and then really trying. And yes, this year they've really come out fighting. Why have not, indeed? By the way, part of the remit of this show is to go off on tangents, as and when they occur to you. So, Till, I haven't discussed this with you in advance, but I just want to carry out a small experiment here. Could you just have a look at the photograph that's on the... Right-hand page for the Christmas Day listings in the TV Times. Have a look at the photograph of Terry and Arthur. Yes, that's very Christmassy. Okay, so what do you see there? What's in the photograph? I'm guessing they're on a sleigh. They're on some kind of vehicle. They're wearing Santa Claus coats, not wearing the whole outfit. It's not the wig and beard. And Arthur Daly has a little teddy bear. And he's holding onto his hat because obviously they're speeding through the night. Mm -hmm. Okay, now can you keep that open? And now go and have a look at the cover of the Radio Times. You don't have to go searching for it. It's page one. Yes, and that's Del Boy, Uncle Albert and Rodney. And they have a teddy bear too. And they're sharing a bottle of champagne. And they're all very happy. And Uncle Albert's wearing a Father Christmas coat because he's already got the beard. Is it the same bear? Compare and contrast because as far as I can tell, I think they are. I think it is the same bear. Do you think they've gone... To the same studio for their photo shoots. We're seeing that this is not like an in-house photo shoot. I don't know if the BBC ever had an in-house photography department. And he's maybe... 
he's already done the Only Fools and Horses photo shoot, and he's thought this shoot might be for the cover of the TV Times and had a bit of a sly idea. Well, I say him, it's not because I think all photographers are men, it's because when I think of photographers, I think of the shifty-looking guy in the Sweeney, or maybe the pilot, Regan. Do you remember a few years back, it was all that hoo-ha about the woman who did the painting of the Queen Muller, and some people were saying it didn't look like her and what have you, but one particular aspect of it which threw a few people was that there was a mug that was upside down in the painting. And apparently this was something that the artist always did. This was like our signature thing. I'm wondering, do you think this photographer, if it is the same guy, do you think that that's his bear? Yes, I think there may be something going on there. If both bear instances were in the same listings magazine, I would think that this was a competition. I would think that this was like something that the big reveal was going to be on Clive Doig's page at the back, or something where you've got to count the number of instances of the bear appearing in the magazine. But let's face it, you're not going to get any crossover competitions between the Radio Times and the TV Times, are you? And I like it, as, as far as bears go, I think it's, it's a lovely looking bear. And I've seen some bears. <laughs> I still prefer the fact that the TV Times went for an illustrated cover. Yes, it's nice. It is nice. Again, it sort of fits in with the whole business about this commitment. They've got elbow room and they're going to use it and they're going to use it nicely. And that leads me nicely on to Exhibit B, Your Honour. Now, the title of this podcast includes not one name, but two and is the second name that we are focused on here. And this is unfair, because it's not all John Burr's fault, of course. But the 90s, money suddenly becomes somewhat scarce in broadcasting circles. And even though there's still plenty of about, and some shows tend to get a lot of money spent on them, there's fewer and fewer shows that are being made with Stanley Baxter-style budgets. And you've got your man, Bert, and he's instituting his internal market at the BBC. The ITV companies, they're all busy merging and what have you after the 1991 franchise round. And so, if you just fast forward 10 years, have a look at what's on Christmas 95, for example. It's pretty thin gruel. And you've got ITV putting out a half an hour Robson and Jerome special. But it's not like Des O'Connor in this instance in 85. It's just like a sort of, here's Robson and Jerome, they're going to sit there and talk about themselves and it's an interesting thing looking at the two ronnie's christmas special i also looked at the show before the last show of series 11 there's not much to choose between them in terms of spectacle they both look fairly expensive it's natural that you're going to get a lengthy filmed sequence in the middle the last show of series 11 the big sequence in the middle was tinker taylor smiley doyle and in the christmas special it was little big shot so that idea that the last in the series is going to have a little bit more push but an ordinary non-seasonal two Ronnies is going to have one or two musical guests. It's going to have an extended musical number. It's going to have a lengthy filmed sketch. It's going to be, every show is going to be a special. And it did strike me about the budget that they must have had and the fact that it was perfectly okay to do that. I'm not sure you get anything similar now. I haven't seen any of this David Williams and Friends, but I'm guessing it wasn't a 50-minute show with location filming taking up a 15-minute chunk in the middle. I'm agreeing with you. You are agreeing with me, and I'm very pleased. Did you actually specify where you agreed with me on Exhibit A about the soaps ruining everything, even though I, I phrased it far, far better than that? Yeah, fine. I mean, somehow I managed to avoid the soaps all the time they were ruining everything, So, but I'm, I'm not going to argue against that point. Okay, we'll come on to Exhibit C later on. That's my final point. But Only Fools and Horses, I think, was just shy of 20 million. Minder, I think, was 14, so you've got well over half the population watching these two shows on Christmas night. Would you have been in any way tempted by that little curiosity that's on Channel 4 at 7.45, The Mind of David Berglas? Now, I didn't recognise this name at all. I looked this guy up, and apparently he is described as a magician and a mentalist. And he's still going today. It was the cast list that was intriguing me about this. Because his special guests are Stephanie Lawrence, Graham Chapman, Britt Eklund and Freddie Jones. Now, I don't remember Freddie Jones doing a lot of guest appearances on, on all people's shows. Uh, Graham Chapman, I mean, it, it does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? I would be sort of mildly intrigued by this. This is something that comes into its own in a time of four channels. And also, there's not too much in the listings magazine. This is the kind of thing you're not going to notice for the first few days you have your TV times. And sometime before Christmas Day, you're just going to be you're just going to want something to do. Take a flip through and go, oh, hang on, 
not noticed that before. I'm going to set the video for that. That's my thinking. <laughs> a Tiny Tees production directed by Royston Mayo. Yes, yes indeed. We've also got a nice wee deviation later on in Channel 4. We've mentioned Channel 4 a great deal. We've got Mel Brooks hailing Sid Caesar. That strikes me as the kind of thing that would be nice to finish Christmas Day off with late at night. In the same sort of mould as like Parkinson shows of slightly earlier than this, you know, mid-70s and what have you, where he would have our comedians or magicians on, for example. So it'd be slightly lighter fare than the regular talk show. Des O'Connor, of course, he's got his show on, he's got Joan Collins and Dudley Moore as his main guests. What do you reckon? I mean, looking at the four channels, if you're going to settle down for any one channel for the evening, which one would you pick? And what good would that do me? It's 1985, I have a remote control. Oh, blow. Not everybody had a remote control in 85. No, but there were buttons on the television. He didn't get a television, just like hardwired. Right, before I set this up, before I turn this screw in the back, <laughs> that's it. BBC Two Forever. Bye. No, I think we're far better off making the point that you can flip between channels and land on something pleasing. Everybody's got something that contributes to a great Christmas Day schedule. Nobody's given up this year. No, it's all good gear. I mean, 82, for example, ITV was pretty much giving up. 77, they were pretty much giving up as well. So it is nice that we've got two programmes which is going to get over half the population watching in peak time. Actually, one thing we didn't mention about Channel 4, 445, Thief of Baghdad. Now, there's a little association in my mind that Christmas used to mean silent movies on Channel 4. Definitely remember them showing the restored... Nosferatu with a score by somebody who did scores for Hammer and it had all the tints put back in. I've got a fit feeling they had a Harold Lloyd season around about Christmas as well. Obviously that's not ringing any bells with you then that Christmas used to mean silent movies on Channel 4. I sort of remember a little bit of that going on. It's not so much that I really associated with Christmas. I just remember the Tim Silence season. That's who this is all coming from really. And they've misspelled Kevin Brownlaw. Oh. The last time we had a three-hour film on Christmas Day, I seem to remember it was Titanic in 2000 on BBC One, and it did not go down well. That wasn't even meant to be a pun, by the way. I, I did, <laughs> I, honestly, I, didn't, I did not mean that. But no, it, it wasn't popular. Sorry, this is a restored silent movie. Carl Davis score, produced for television by David Gill and Kevin Brownlaw. Can I just mention um, the Blu-ray of Abalgonce's Napoleon? has sold out. The print run has gone. They're going to have to print up another batch. Nobody was entirely prepared for this. And I'm not saying that all comes down to that time we reviewed that episode of Man About the House, but you have to wonder. We've got some more highbrow on later on, of course. To quote Albert Steptoe, we have the partnership of Margot Fontaine and Rudolf in some larking about on the stage. So you don't want to play ball and say, I'm going to be an ITV guy, I'm going to be a BBC2 guy, whatever it is. You're not going to... No, I think that detracts from our argument. Not necessarily Christmas time, but there are occasions when I've been a viewer... That one year, wire TV all day. Don't remind me. My Christmas with Mike Morris. I was never lucky enough to see wire TV, alas. I quite like the idea that you just settle down. I think it's probably something that belongs to a slightly earlier time than this. But the idea that you would just settle down and spend Christmas with BBC television or with ITV. And I don't really think it's feasible now, to be honest, but it was feasible back then. Maybe we're slightly getting out of that era by this point. Especially as ITV now has its partner in crime, Channel 4. Did you by any chance peruse the radio listings? If you're not tuned to BBC Radio during the day, you are missing out, right? Because in the morning, we've got Ken Bruce on Radio 2. That's followed by... Yes, it's the Sid Lawrence Orchestra, if you didn't get enough of them in Says Les. And then, how about this then? We have got the Christmas news headlines. We have a classic Hancock's half hour. And then if you switch over to Radio 4 for 10 past 1, you've got Christmas Steptoe and Son as well. That's pretty good, isn't it? I definitely remember the Christmas radio comedies at lunchtime. And then I had a different relationship with them because frequently... For a few Christmases running, I'd get a new personal stereo on Christmas Day. So one of the first things you do is check out the FM reception on it. And, and it's always poor, isn't it? Um, no, it was okay, actually. What? Mine was always awful. FM stereo was always more crackly than FM mono, but 
the FM reception was fine. Oh, well, there you go. But no, I'd, maybe I was in a black spot as far as the reception was concerned. But no, FM stereo was always. Shall I whip out Exhibit C, Your Honour, and close the book on my argument that everything turned to jelly after Christmas '85? Okay, go ahead. And not in a good way. Now you are fervent in your opposition to big films on Christmas night. However, most of the general public quite like the big film on Christmas Day. Your Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. Your E.T., your Sound of Music, for example, 78. However, you could argue that by this point, maybe this is just a touch too early, but we're almost there. We're starting to see items on, say, 60 Minutes, for example, about this new modern phenomenon known as the video recorder. and you can go to your local video shop and you can hire films. Now, is it the case that this is pretty much the last hurrah for the era of the big film? Because by this point, mid-1980s, people are able to hire out films from the video shop. And we're only a few years away then from, for example, the cost of actually buying videotapes coming down, particularly the video collection with their £9.99 releases in places like Woolworths. And then a Terrifying f- items. Oh yes. And then a few years on from that, you've got Sky. You've got Cable. Their movie channels have got movies on there a good couple of years before they get onto terrestrial TV. So, all those things combined, by the time we get to say, 2016, okay, I know a lot of people will be watching Frozen on BBC on Christmas Day. But, I dare say that most of the people who were interested in seeing Frozen I've probably already seen it. If it wasn't at the cinema, they would have seen it on DVD or Blu-ray or Sky or whatever it was. Or perhaps even as a digital download from Tesco Blinkbox. So, has the era of the Christmas film peaked by 1985, do we think? I haven't given it much thought, but I'm willing to accept your argument. Is there still something to be said for actually just enjoying a film, even if you've seen it before, just enjoying it on Christmas Day because it's Christmassy and also because you might have everybody around and you can all see it and also not hear any of it because everybody's gabbing away. Probably one person in the room is just talking and talking and talking incessantly so nobody gets to hear any of it at all. And usually, do you know what's really irritating? It's usually when somebody else in the room thinks, okay, there's a solution to this problem, let's put the subtitles on. It's usually the person who's been doing all the damn talking throughout the whole film who then pipes up and says, why have we got the subtitles on? There's nobody in this room as deaf, is there? Funnily enough, because I'm always terrified of the sports drought that happens on Christmas Day, but I noticed that if I look to the States, there's always live sport available. And from about sort of five o'clock in the afternoon on Christmas Day, there are live NFL games, for example, and live basketball games in the NBA. It sort of goes back to this theory about how Christmas Day is more of a sort of full stop in the States after a month of hijinks. I don't mean hijinks in the daughter in the house virus thing, which was sense, but more... It's well, like, there's still New Year's, but yes, it doesn't hang in the air the same way as it does in the UK. Are you going to accept my overall premise that 1985, I'm not saying it was the greatest Christmas lineup in history, but would you say... Okay, put it this way. Would you say there's been a better Christmas lineup since? I'd have to go through all my Radio Timeses. I will accept that Christmas Day 1985 is a perfect example of a certain kind of Christmas Day scheduling in television history that is to be looked back upon fondly and is worth talking about television as a mass medium that brings people together all at the same time. Tens of millions of people all watching the same thing at the same time. Call it the Golden Age if you want to call it the Golden Age, whatever. Yes, Christmas Day 1985, it's one of the ones to look at. One of the ones to go in the Museum of Christmas Television History. In the Good Wing. Over here is the Bad Wing, and Christmas Day 1986 is in there. Have you enjoyed your time on the Green Bart Experiment Sova? Yes, next time we'll really have to find a day that is personally meaningful. Can you actually think of a day off the top of your head, without actually doing any research at all, can you think of a day that you think is particularly memorable? I mean, even if you think of like like the specifics and then we can work out actually what date it was later on, does something spring to mind? No. That's why we're not recording another one right as soon as we finish this one. This will take time. Thankfully, it's not just going to be ourselves who are in the chair each and every week. Because in 2017, there'll be different hosts from the Podnose Network who'll be in these seats. 
if you've enjoyed what you've heard, or if you've got any suggestions about potential improvements to the show in the future with other hosts, probably the best place to leave those comments will be on the Podnose Twitter feed, which is simply at Podnose. Let us know. Let Podnose know what you thought of today's show. If you have in mind a particular date that you think would be worthy of discussion, if you think it's something particularly special, it doesn't have to be special in televisual terms, it doesn't have to be the anniversary of anything, just something where you think, oh, there's something going on there. I mean, I'd like to do 5th of April 1984 at some point, but I suspect that we might actually struggle to get a full hour of that, considering that that was the day there were no programmes on BBC One. But in the meantime, of course, plenty of festive listening for yourselves. Podnose.com is where you will find over eight hundred episodes of all manner of podcasts, including, even if I do say so myself, say, Jaffa Cakes for Proust, or, hmm, The Sitcom Club. Of course, movies. It's all about the movies at Christmas time. Cinema Limbo. You've been on that recently, haven't you? Uh, yes, talking about John Carter. Okay, let's go out on a high. Let's go out on a showstopper. Top of the Pops, 1985, Christmas Day, Gary Davis, Janice Long, John Peel, Steve Wright. There you go. What do you think? As a lineup, it's, it's an improvement on Christmas 84, isn't it? Because we've just seen Christmas 84. And that's unique and also lacking. <laughs> what is it? Do, do tell the listeners what it is about Christmas 84 which marks out the Christmas Top of the Pops as somewhat different. Every act, or almost every act, introduces the act following. There's no Radio 1 DJ hosting because Michael Hill got the hump with all the DJs jockeying to be the one who presented the Christmas show. Answer came back, none of you. We sent a bit of tension between Paul Young and Duran Duran, weren't we? I was just intrigued as to why there were so few. Was there a strike that year amongst the musicians? I mean, why were the only acts on that show, basically, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and... Thompson Twins. That's them, yeah. I mean, I think they were maybe basing it on top-selling singles of the year. I think it might have been something like that. There was a rule in place. But yeah, weren't there four Frankie numbers? Something like that. It was too much. It was overkill. Yeah. And the thing is that you had them coming back and coming back and coming back, and then you had basically the entire music industry there for the finale, which was Band-Aid, of course. So couldn't Status Quo have come on and done a couple of numbers? Maybe Jazz and Dave just lighten things up a bit. Bobby Crush, he should have been on it. Any road up. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening to the Green Bird Experiment. Till you've been till. I've been Gary. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all listening. And do stay tuned in 2017 for further editions of the Greenberg Experiment on podnose.com. <laughs>